0: My praise shall be of you in the great assembly. I will pay my vow before those who fear him. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will please the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust shall bow before him, even he who cannot keep himself alive. A posterity shall serve him. It will be recounted of the Lord to the next generation. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born, that he has done this. Those are verses 24 to 30 of Psalm 22, which is the psalm appointed for today, Sunday, May the 3rd, 2021. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thank you for being with me today. I'm sorry I'm a little bit late. We've had a busy week, to say the least. Our son, Will, that I've spoken about, had a traumatic brain injury about six weeks ago now. And we have been since then at the hospital most of our time. Uh, there's not been much else to account for what we've done and, and how we've had to live for the last several weeks, because we've had to go and, and be there twice a day, every day, and then Tuesday of this week, we moved him from Asheville, North Carolina, where we live, to Chattanooga, Tennessee, where I grew up, and the reason we did that is because there's a uh, good rehab place here in Chattanooga, and so we've been here this week, and uh, for the last, what, five days or whatever it is, and it's been kind of a busy time. We've had some time to relax, sometimes to walk around and uh, just enjoy being out again because it's been, it feels like forever since we've been actually outside much. So we've, we've had a good time here, and we're, we're staying at my brother's house in my um My mother lives about two miles away or three miles away, something like that. So it's been kind of nice to be around this week and be around family. I mean, I love my family. And so it's just been a really good time to be together and to to see Will begin to improve dramatically. Um, And so we're excited about that. There's a lot of good things going on. And I'm just glad to be part of something God's doing. You know, it's truly been an exciting thing to, to watch this and to see other people come on board and pray for us and, and lift us up. And it makes an enormous difference. And it's the way, one of the ways, chief ways, in fact, that we love one another has to do with, with praying for one another. And that's the point of John's um, epistle that we're looking at today. And, and that's First uh, John 4, 7 to 21. He says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. And then he goes on from there to say it's the duty of a Christian. But it's not just duty. He doesn't he doesn't use the word duty. Um but, but it's not just the duty of a Christian. It should be like reflective of who we are. It should be our character, uh, because it's God's character. And so our character should be formed exactly the way that his is formed. And so we we are geared to sort, sort of uh, engineered <clears throat> to love one another and do we, how do we do with that How do we do with those that, that are closest to us do we love them well and then how do we expand the circle to include those who are not you know near or whatever it, it, so it's, it can be those who, who um, not only who are our friends and our family but it can be all those who are brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus and we owe them a duty of love. And so then we need to also do what Jesus did, which was to love the world. And that's how uh, John gets at this, is to say this is how God showed his love among us. So listen up, because you know this is the way we should be loving as well. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. And then he's very clear about how this all begins. Hey, you're not loving God first. This is no virtue of your own. This is something you do in response to God's love this is love not that we love god but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins and since god loved us we ought to love one another and you know there's only really jesus sums up the commands in two different things which is love the lord your god with all your heart soul strength and mind and then love your neighbor as yourself and so those two things are linked to one another because we are created in the image of god so we're loving god and loving god's image those are the two basic commands that we've been given, and then we've been given stewardship over the earth. And so we're responsible for all of those things, and sometimes the way that we carry out that stewardship over the earth has a lot to say about how we love one another. Are we hoarding things, or are we sharing things? How does, how does our stewardship of what we've personally been given look, and then how does it look the way that we hold others accountable for the stewardships that they have been given? It matters in the body of Christ, but it matters on a broader scale as well, because we, we, if we have scarce resources on the planet, then we need to consider always the needs of others along with the, the desires that we might have. And so the way that we love one another, John says, has to do if you have more of the world's goods than somebody else who has actually need of something like a cloak, for instance, then, then we're to provide that for Those people. And so the church has been involved in those kinds of um, activities since its beginning. And in fact, some of the most important work the church has ever done, as far as um, spreading the love of God and the word of God, has been to be there when people are in need and to provide for that need as best as we are able to do so, whether it's individually or as a church. But it's the way that Rodney Stark, who's a historian of religions at Baylor University, said that the church primarily grew. During the times of the plagues or even uh, the invasion and and sacking of Rome is is that that Christians didn't consider their lives and saving their lives the most important thing. They considered others the most important thing. And so in in providing for and caring for others, the church grew because God showed that this is a different group of people because everybody else fled and the Christians remained. And it should be the hallmark of the church today is that we love one another and that we love the world in the name of Christ and for him. And John says, this is real simple stuff. This is how we know we live in him and he in us, and he's given us of his spirit. And we've seen and testify the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. He makes this really simple. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us. So we'll have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we're like Jesus. There's no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. And what John's argument there is, is is that, that if you're still fearing judgment, if you're not confident in your salvation, then you're not complete in Jesus. Because if you don't believe the work on the cross was sufficient and it was finished, not just for Jesus, but for you and for all sinners, then you're going to have doubt You're not going to have accepted the fullness of God's love because the fullness of his love says says Jesus is enough. It says that he is perfect, that his sacrifice was absolutely perfect without any blemish at all. No sin could be found in him. And he loves you so much that he did all the work necessary to attain your salvation and to give you eternal life. Your, quote, work is simply to believe in that, and that belief itself is prompted by the Holy Spirit. So the fact that you can acknowledge Jesus as the Son of God and the Savior of the world means that, that the Spirit lives in you, because you wouldn't be able to acknowledge that otherwise. Now the other side of it is, is that, that what we need to do is not just have the Spirit living in us, we need to enable and, and, and allow the Spirit to live through us. So in us and through us are two different things, and, and one of those, the barrier, is us. Whether that's our own failure to con- to uh, confess our sins and to repent of our sins, or whether it's just some stubbornness and whether we, we have preferences and we don't want to be thought of as different or strange or whatever, out of step with, you know, um, that if that's your problem, then look at Peter's life and, and, and watch and listen to Peter deny Jesus three times the night of his trial. It, it's th- th- That's who you are, actually. I mean, that's the sin that you're in if you're afraid to allow the Spirit to live through you because it'll make you different. So the, then that is sin, and we so we hinder the work of the Holy Spirit in and through us when we make those kinds of decisions and when we, didn't not, we don't deny Jesus exactly, we just don't proclaim him very loudly in thought, word, and deed. Um, and so it, it's important if we are to have no fear, then it's important to acknowledge the finished work of Jesus on the cross as sufficient for my salvation and that in love he did that for me. And I can't, under any circumstances, do it for myself. I can't add a single thing to the work that he has done. All I can get, do is continue the work that he did on the cross by laying down my life for others. And it's as imperative and the call on us that has to do with love. And so if we acknowledge and accept the fullness of his love, that literally everything that could be done was done for me, then that should change me. It should give me confidence when I come before the throne because I'm not relying on my own righteousness or my own goodness. I'm relying on Jesus' righteousness, and I'm relying on Jesus' love when I do that. And he just John's just very clear. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. And, and so to the extent that we carry any kind of unforgiveness for our brothers and sisters, you know, if, if we make sure that we sit on the opposite side of the room from them when we come to church on Sunday, then we're bringing our sin into the assembly. And we are making that assembly impure and less than it ought to be because we're carrying unforgiveness towards brothers and sisters in Christ. And it's important for us, and it's important for the body to function properly it, that we love one another, that we lay down our grievances against one another. We, it doesn't mean that, that we allow somebody to sin against us over and over and over. No, we confront the sin. But we confront the sin with the same attitude that Christ confronted the sin, which is the the willingness and the desire to forgive sin. That that's how we come at that. Is 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 to say, you know, I want to get this clear between us. I want to get this fixed between us because it's for my good and your good that we do that, and so that we but that we call things what they are. We call them as sin, and, and we deal with them honestly and openly and and with the attitude that my goal here in confronting this sin is to not make you feel guilty, but it's so that I might be able to forgive you and you might be able to see this and avoid this in the future. So when we do that then we're we're fixing not only the present relationship, we are also setting barriers not barriers, we're setting boundaries for relationships which are important. And those boundaries include, you can't just sin against me over and over and over. It's not an excuse to say, that's just how Brian is. That, that's not the way that it works in the church. No, we can, if, if Brian is a wrong way, and we all acknowledge it by saying, that's just how Brian is, then, then we have a problem because we're tolerating something that, that should not be tolerated. We're allowing Brian to be something less than he is intended to be, and we're allowing Brian to believe that he doesn't have sin when we all know that he does because we just said, well, that's just how Brian is. So we've got to be clear about how we love one another. We don't That doesn't mean we let people walk all over us and sin against us. It means that, that we lay down our right for revenge or whatever against them, and we come to them with an attitude that says I, the goal here is to forgive you and to get this clean between us. And, and Jesus tells in the gospel lesson, which is John 15, to 8 Jesus uses this metaphor of, being, of him being the vine and us being the branches, and, and it's clear that, that apart from him, we can bear no fruit at all. And one of the things in Anglicanism that people don't like is to say that there are no good works apart from Christ. There's no good work that I have done apart from him. In other words, if I come to him, if I have done wonderful things in the eyes of the world, and then I come to him at 40, having done all these great things and present those things before him um, as wonderful things, then, then his attitude towards that was it wasn't done for the glory of God, and therefore it's not actually good. Because good means things were done exactly as they should have been done and as they were intended to be done. And they were intended to give glory to the Lord. And the fact that they didn't means that, that, that they're tainted by sin and people don't like that. But what Jesus says is, apart from me, you can do nothing. So what he's, But what he's saying to Christians is very simple. I'm the true vine, my father's the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it may be more fruitful. You're already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I'm the vine. You're the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you'll bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you think about that metaphor as that I'm the vine and you're the branches, then all the nourishment for the branches comes from the vine, which comes from the root. So the vine is established in the root and then provides nourishment to all the branches so that they might bear fruit. And so Jesus is giving us this example for us to understand what it means and how important it is for us to remain in him. Because you would know and I would know that if I break off a branch of a vine, that um, a grapevine, for instance, if I, and then just set it aside apart from that vine, then nothing will come from that. All you can do with that is throw it into the fire. He says, if you don't remain in me, you're like a branch that's thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. And so we're called into this other sort of deeper relationship where, where we believe so deeply in Him, we believe so deeply in the Word of God that we live in Him, that our life is hidden with Christ in God, literally is what Paul says, right? So, is that who we are? It, or are we living such a life that, that the Lord is, is, you know, semi-glorified, but, but we've you know we got time for Him, um, but, you know, we, we keep everything in its proper place and in its proper um, perspective, and Jesus says, you're not supposed to do that. <laughs> you're supposed to keep it. Uh, the Father is number one. And it's what Jesus did, is that he came here to do one thing, which is to glorify the Father. And in the glorification of the Father through his life, then he too would be glorified. And so in our lives, is he being glorified? Do we love Jesus as much as he loved us? That, that our goal, it becomes the same as his goal, which is to glorify the Father. If we do that, if we're lifting all of that up, then we participate in the life of the Trinity. And so if we, we allow the Holy Spirit to live through us freely and to take us and do with us whatever he would care to do, then then we'll understand and know that love, and that's that perfect love that casts out fear because we're living the pleasure of the Father because we're doing his will and we're following him wherever he happens to lead us to go. And and the question is, are we prepared and are we willing to go where he leads us and where he sends us? And, and, you know, I confess that there's not every moment of my life I'm not happy to do that because there are times when it's inconvenient to do that, and there are times when it's just hard, frankly, to go up to people and begin to speak with them about things that, that are uncomfortable. And so it's one of the things that I really didn't care for very much about pastoring a church was that I knew that as a shepherd I had to deal with sin. I had to deal with sin in my own life and had to confess it to people that I was supposed to be leading spiritually. If I'd sinned against them, then I had to confess that sin to them. And then the other thing is is to get other people to confess their sins against one another and to also explain to those who had been sinned against that you don't have the right to carry that and bear that against them. You need for yourself and for them to get rid of that, so we've got to deal with it, and we've got to deal with it openly and honestly. And it's never easy to do that. But there's, there, there are times when it, when God asks us to do something that we can't see the end of, and we can't see why that would be an important thing. And, and so sometimes we balk at doing what God wants us to do simply because we just don't see the purpose and the point in it. You could probably look at Philip in Acts eight twenty six to forty, which is our lesson for today, we, you could probably look at Philip and, and say, you know, this guy has done everything God asked of him, right? I mean, he stepped up and, and, and got called in to being a deacon. This is Philip the deacon, not Philip the um, apostle, by the way. And so um, in Acts 6, just a couple of chapters before that, remember they've got a problem in the new church in those days when the number of disciples was increasing the hellenistic jews among them the ones who had had converted let's say uh complained against the hebraic jews because their widows the hellenistic jews were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food in other words there was a preference among people in the distribution of this food so the 12 the disciples. gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We'll turn this responsibility over to them and we'll give our intention to prayer and the ministry of the word. So they bring forward these seven people. And so seven people, including Philip, who is uh, the subject of our Acts reading today is one of those guys, right? So what's his job? His job is to serve tables, right? So that the apostles can devote themselves to the uh, word of God. And so there's a uh, there's this other class or other set of sort of leaders in the early church, and and their job is to make sure that everybody gets you know their fair share. Of the stuff because remember the church all was putting things into the hands of the Apostles and saying I don't own this anymore here you take it and have it and do whatever you think is best with it and so what they've done is they've they've now found seven other people to come and take charge of those things they've given them stewardship over that and Philip's one of those guys and so the the issue is is that the first two people that we see as evangelists are actually a couple of guys whose job it was to serve tables. We've got Stephen and Philip, because Stephen comes and, and, and is doing work and doing evangelism, and so they, they come, the people come against him, and end up stoning him. But in the process, he preaches a message to them of redemption in Jesus and so Stephen is stoned, and then after that, there's a persecution that breaks out in Jerusalem. Because remember, the disciples have been told to go to Jerusalem, Jerusalem Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So that they've been taught to go out in sort of concentric waves from Jerusalem. And so the persecution breaks out, and what we're told is, is that everybody else fled the city except the apostles who stayed behind in Jerusalem. These are the only people with the, with the commission and the mandate to go, and they stay. So what happens is Philip goes to Samaria. And remember in uh, John 4 that Jesus meets a, a woman at the well? Yeah, well, that's Samaria, and, and they don't like the Samarian, Samaritans. The Jews don't like the people from Samaria. The, the Samaritans don't like the Jews either. And the reason is is because they feel like they've kept Judaism pure and undefiled, and, and they were never intended to worship in Jerusalem. They have the books of the Torah and that, the books of Moses, the first five books, and that's all they have, and that's all they needed. And so they stayed where they were. They stayed in the mountain that God had originally said, and so they considered themselves to be the true Israel. Well, when Jesus meets the Samaritan woman, know that that's her ground of faith, is that we're the right ones. And Jesus confronts her in all this and he says, you Samaritans worship you know not what. Salvation comes from the Jews. Everything you believe, everything you hold dear about yourself and about your people is wrong. It's, It's in fact not just wrong, it's a complete lie. And so Jesus has already done work there because he he converted. Well, that woman began to believe that he was the Messiah, and then the other people in the village said likewise. We no longer believe because of your testimony. Um, Now we believe because we've seen, which is exactly the point (laughs) of sending Jesus into the world was it so people could see and they could believe. And so when Philip gets chased out of Jerusalem by this persecution, what does he do? Well, he goes to Samaria. Well, it's a good reason to go to Samaria. The basic work of the gospel has already been laid. Now go, let's, let's see if they know the rest of the story. And so Philip goes to Samaria, and a, a great harvest is had there in Samaria, so much so that he doesn't know exactly what to do, and so essentially he does what, what any priest in the Anglican world would do today. Hey, I've got a bunch of people here prepared for you. I need somebody out to come out and confirm them. And so the bishops, the apostles come out. They see the work that's been done there. They lay hands on them, and all these people start speaking in tongues. And so, they, so essentially they had already been baptized, and now they get confirmed into the church. And what happens is the Holy Spirit's unleashed in their lives, and, and now there are different people. And shortly after that then is where this epistle comes in from Acts. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south on to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Kandiki, or Candace, or Candis, which means queen of the Ethiopians. This man was had gone to Jerusalem to worship and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. So Philip leaves a, a profitable place for ministry and then is told basically to go out into the wilderness and go down to the desert road. And so he goes and he comes across this Ethiopian eunuch. So he the spirit told him, go to that chariot and stay near it. So Philip ran up next to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. And he asked him, do you understand what you're reading? And the man says, how can I, unless someone explains it to me? In other words, I need a rabbi. Do you know a rabbi? Because I need a rabbi. I need a rabbi to come and explain whatever it is that I'm reading here. It doesn't make sense to me. And, and I think it's because it's too good to be true in so many ways. And so he invited Philip to come and sit with him. And this is what the eunuch was reading. He was reading, he was led like a sheep to the slaughter and as a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants for his life was taken from the earth? And so the eunuch asked Philip, tell me please, who's the prophet talking about himself or someone else? Did you hear that whole thing? Who can speak of his descendants for his life was taken from the earth? And this eunuch could relate to that person. And the reason he could relate is because he won't have any descendants and in so many ways his life was taken from the earth when he was made a eunuch. And so he's fascinated by this one that he's reading about here because he has something in common with this one. Wait a minute. And then later Isaiah actually talks about eunuchs. In, in the next chapter he speaks about eunuchs and, and, and their joy that they will take. In this Messiah. And, and so because this one that he's reading about has no descendants and his life was taken from the earth, then he's very much like him in the very same situation. And so he says, tell me please, who is the prophet talking about himself or someone else? And then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. And it is good news because eunuchs were not going to inherit the kingdom of God. And so this gives him hope on a very personal level. Not only can I inherit the kingdom of God, I can also identify deeply with the one who allows me to inherit it. And so there's this deep connection with, with the one who has no descendants, whose life has been taken from the earth. And so he loves Jesus because he has something in common with Jesus. He sees something there that salvation extends even to those who are otherwise unable to enter the kingdom of God. And so Jesus seems to have made a way for that to happen because he was not fruitful and multiply in the sense of having descendants. And so this man says, this is the kind of Messiah that I need. And so Philip explains the good news about Jesus and that that he is the Savior for all the world. It doesn't matter what your situation in the world is. He came to redeem that. He came to give you hope. He came to give you life. And so as they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, look, there's water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? So here they are in a desert place, and they find water necessary for baptism. It sounds something a little bit like the Exodus, right? They're going out of a place and going into the wilderness, and there's a need of water. And that need of water in this particular case is not for drinking, it's for baptism. It's to meet the deeper need of this man's life. And so here in the wilderness, in the desert, they find water. And that water is for his baptism. And so he, the eunuch, gives orders to stop the chariot. And then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away and the eunuch did not see him again, but he went on his way rejoicing. You know, you can look at that and say, well, you know, he, he's a eunuch, so there's only going to be one generation of this. But the reality is, is that that one of the things that you'll see, if you can, it, I, I'll try and find this video this week and post it over on the Face Seeking Understanding website, Facebook page. That, that shows the advance and retreat of Christianity over the years. You see Christianity expanding relatively quickly in a small region during the time of the apostles, then it grows and grows, and, and as the Roman Empire expands, it expands as well. But as as the Muslims begin after the 6th century, as they begin to, to do their work, Sort of work, let's call it not evangelism exactly but conquest as they do conquest you see Christianity retreating in a great number of places and then from there it goes on and it becomes what it is today one of the things that you can see if you're looking for it is in that same video what you can see is is that there's one place where Christianity never really retreats Ethiopia once it got established there, it continued to be established there, and there's been flourishing of that there. It's a really odd thing, because the, sort of the roots of Christianity go back all the way to Solomon, who and they believe, in fact, that Halle Selassie, who was the last emperor there, they believe that he was a direct descendant of Solomon and the Queen of Sheba. And so the Judaism goes back into Ethiopia for, for uh, millennia, and then when we see the advance of Christianity in that in that video, what you see is is that it perseveres constantly in Ethiopia. There's something special about that and and that goes even back into World War One or World War Two, sorry, in the late thirties, the Sudan inland mission sent missionaries into Ethiopia and they began to go among a tribe that had been a very pagan tribe called the Wallamo and they go to the Walamo, and they begin to witness to them and they, they have to leave because Mussolini is moving his Italian troops into northern Africa and so they're under threat and so the people, the missionaries bolt and get out of there in the same way that we see this with, uh, with the missionaries in leaving Jerusalem in this uh, Acts passage. And so they go and they leave and they're worried. They're very deeply concerned about whether this will persevere because, well, we just started this work and and at some level it must be what dependent on us, right? And so they leave and then they come back as soon as possible in July of 1943 after they abandoned the North African front, the the Italians and the Germans. And it says, despite severe persecution by the Italian soldiers, the Christian community had grown from 48 members to 18,000 during that same time, that indigenous movement became explosive. And so if we'll be obedient, if we'll follow him and we'll go wherever he leads, even if he takes us into a desert place to make one convert, then we can bear fruit. We can bear fruit because we're doing God's work, God's way, in God's place and in God's time. And that's all any of us can do. The only question is, are we willing? Will we go? When he wants somebody to go to a people or a place... He wants you to speak the gospel to somebody that, that you might not otherwise even ever encounter in your whole life, are you willing to do that? Because we don't know what will bear fruit. Even if it's one, Philip never probably had any earthly idea what happened in Ethiopia. Had no idea that Christianity would persevere there for millennia because he was obedient to God and preached the gospel to one man in the desert. You've been listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm John Green, and I'm your host. Thank you for being with me today. I appreciate that, and I will see you soon.